0: This is Becky Gannon, and I'm mad about miniatures. Today, I'm excited to talk to Chad at My Miniature Brownstone about the Mini Time Machine Museum of Miniatures in Tucson, Arizona. Chad is on the board of the museum, and we talk about the history and all the tiny treasures of the museum. Chad is also a talented miniaturist in his own right, and we talk about his miniatures, what inspires him, and his recent participation in the Guild Study Program in Colonial Williamsburg, run by IGMA, the International Guild of Miniature Artisans. Let's go talk to Chad. Hi, Chad. It's so nice to have you on the show.
1: Hi, Becky. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. I'm really excited about this. I can't wait to hear about the Tucson Mini Time Machine.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, yes. It's my pleasure. You know, as you probably know, I love to go to many museums, and I've been to so many of them. And one of that I haven't been is the one in Tucson. I understand that you are a board member of the museum.
1: Yeah. So I am actually one of the newer board members. I've been on the board for about a year and a half. I am absolutely loving it. The museum is such a fantastic place It's over 15,000 square feet of museum space. Really? Yeah, it is a very large museum, which um, I think is something that surprises a lot of people. But when our uh, founders built the building, they really wanted to make it a state-of-the-art facility. And and so, yeah, we've got uh, a number of really amazing pieces that are in our permanent collection. And then we have some wonderful temporary exhibits as well.
0: That's fantastic. So you are a large mini museum.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly right.
0: So how old is, and and what's the correct name? Do you call it the mini time machine?
1: So uh, that's a really good question. It is called so many things, but um, it is called the mini time machine museum of miniatures. It is a tongue twister to say the least.
0: I'm going to have to practice that for the intro. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So how old is the museum?
1: So the museum opened in August of 2009. So it's been, um, it's about 14 years old. And it's still going strong. I mean, we have beautiful, large cases that house um, some really large, spectacular uh, miniatures made by some really well-known miniature artists.
0: Well, that sounds fantastic. I actually plan on coming to see it in person sometime this year.
1: Oh, that would be fantastic to have you. Let me know.
0: I will. I will. I'm very excited. So do you have a favorite piece or... I don't want to make you feel like you're picking, you know, a favorite child. But. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> it's funny that you ask, because um, I think all of us that spend any time at the museum, we all have one or two favorite pieces and they're all different. But personally, I would have to say my favorite piece in the collection is called Green and Green. It's by Pat and Noel Thomas, who are some pretty well-known miniature artisans. And it is a arts and crafts style California home, and it may be known to some of the listeners as Doc's House on Back to the Future. Oh, yes. It's an incredible piece. One thing I just learned the other day while I was talking to our registrar about this is that the original house in Pasadena, built back in the arts and crafts movement, was built not with nails, but with wooden pegs. And so when Pat and Noel Thomas, when they built this replica, it too is all built with wooden pegs, and it is not built with any sort of nails or screws, which I thought was really incredible.
0: That is incredible. They just get every detail right, don't they?
1: They do. Every piece of Pat and Noel Thomases that I've seen, they're always exceptional. And the workmanship is, is second to none.
0: That's incredible. Now, is there a piece that some people might consider the most famous or important in the museum?
1: So we have two pieces, I would say, in the museum that are some of our more important pieces. One is called The Yellow Rose of Texas. That is by artist Madeline Cook. And it is based on a large... Texan home, just something that you would really think of if you're if you're thinking of Dallas. Um, I actually, I actually uh, kind of think that it is similar to one of the houses that you would have seen in the nighttime soap opera Dallas from back in the '80s. Oh, that's hilarious! Yes, it's a multi room, multi story house. The display cabinet, I should say, that it's housed in, is um, about 12 feet long, and it spans you know one whole wall of Uh, One of the museum rooms on the complete opposite end of the spectrum in one of our smallest galleries. We've got W. Foster Tracy's violin maker shop, which is actually the shop is made inside of an 18th century wooden violin. Oh, wow. It's an incredible piece. It was built in 1979. There were only six of these made, and we have number two in the museum. And something that makes this really special is that um, the wood shavings that are on the floor are actual wood shavings from the violin that uh, was used to house the miniature. And then there are little bottle bottles of lacquer on the shelf, and those bottles are actually filled with lacquer. And so it's um, it's about as real as you can get in a miniature form.
0: The attention to detail and and using all those materials throughout—that's a
1: neat touch. Yes, yes.
0: Am I right that you have something commissioned by Narcissa Thorn?
1: We do. So, and not it's not commissioned by her. It's not a Thorn room, unfortunately. I wish that we had a Thorn room. Don't we all? (laughs) Right. The piece that we have actually was made by her. It is in 1, 144th scale. So it's quite small. Wow. But it is a very small, very, what's the word I'm looking for? I would say crude. Kind of rough and ready. (laughs) Yeah, very rough and ready. Very rough and ready. And you would see on the bottom of it that it's actually... Ah, uh, to her niece. So she made this tiny house and she gave it to her niece. And what I think sets this piece apart from the uh, from the Thorn Rooms is, you know, with the Thorn Rooms, narcissus says she put a a person to work. She had the idea, but she had craftsmen from all over the world that would that would make this room box come to life. Um, and that's what we see at the Phoenix Art Museum and then also the uh, Museum of Art in Chicago. And this piece to actually have been made by her, I think makes it very, very special.
0: That's really kind of special that you have a piece she actually made.
1: Yeah, it really is. And so tiny. (laughs) So tiny. It is very, very tiny.
0: So I noticed a couple things that I really think makes this museum stand out from others. And one is that you have a lot of traveling exhibits, new exhibits, temporary exhibits. I think that really adds a lot of excitement. And it looks like you have a lot of Really fun exhibits coming or there right now.
1: Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more. And that is one thing that the museum is really striving to do is to incorporate all forms of miniature, right? We really like to ask ourselves, what is miniature? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a house or a room box, a piece of fine miniature furniture. We definitely have those. We have those in abundance. Our museum actually has over 500 permanent pieces in our collection that we rotate on a regular basis. So if you come every couple of months, you are certain to see something new that you have not seen before, which I think is really exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. And along with that, we have one of another one of my favorites, um, our pencil carvings, where an artist, his name is Salavit Vadai. He he is a Russian gentleman, and he carves the most intricate sculptures on the tip of a pencil.
0: I saw those. I couldn't believe it. I thought I was imagining (laughs) it.
1: It is just the most incredible thing. I believe we have three of his pieces on permanent display. And one of my favorites, and I just, my mind is blown every time I see it, but he has actually sculpted a bird in a birdcage. You have to have a magnifying glass to see this thing because it's so small and intricate, but it is just the most amazing piece of craftsmanship. And so really the museum does a good job of pushing the boundaries on what is miniature. You had just asked about some of the temporary exhibits that we currently have. And throughout the year, the museum has about 10 traveling or temporary exhibits that come through. We typically do two larger exhibits a year. We do three community corner exhibits. So the community corner is really cool. It takes a, a local artist, a local miniature artist and really shows their work. And then we have three to five exhibit spotlights. The three to five exhibit spotlights, what those typically would be are maybe smaller collections that we already have in the museum that we don't have on permanent display and we'll bring out for a couple of months for people to see these. There's always things moving around and changing. We like to try to be as up to date and as on trend as possible And in our community corner currently, we have a show called Remarkable Presence, commemorating the victims of COVID-19. It's a multidisciplinary display. Her name is Jen Erso, and she basically provides us with a visual reflection on the process of grief and loss through making these small suitcases out of paper that have writings about COVID, names of people who unfortunately perished during COVID. And it's just a really interesting, one, exhibit. And also to see this form of miniature is, I think, really incredible. That's in our community corner.
0: I saw that. And I was so impressed for a couple reasons. That's what made me realize you have plenty of things that are miniatures and miniature houses. But you've also gone beyond that into art and things that have different kinds of meaning. Yeah. That's really special. It's really unique. And they start a conversation about something that's very relevant.
1: They certainly do. I mean, this is how much more relevant can you get than, you know, something that took, you know, that took over two years of a lot of people's lives, if not more, and affected every single person in this world. And then to see something like this in miniature is, I think, in a way, a subtle reminder that life is still happening around you. And then on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, one of our larger temporary exhibits that we have this year just opened in February. It was by an artist. His name is Nick Lavasser, and he is predominantly a, a filmmaker and photographer. And again, more recently, he wanted to push himself a little bit. And so he started to make these miniature dioramas. It's funny because they are either in a kind of post-apocalyptic world or abandoned or other dioramas are based on either horror movies or video games. And what he does mainly with these dioramas is he takes them and he will either do a video around them or he'll do a photo. And I went onto his Instagram um, and he he had a reel on his Instagram of how he made this one photo, which is a single family residence house that is miniature. And then he makes a little puff of smoke next to it and then takes pictures. The outcome is the most remarkable, eerie photo of this house in the mist. And it just, it's so moody and it's so beautiful. And so we're gonna have 13 of his dioramas in our temporary exhibit room.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And will you also have sort of the finished photos or film or whatever you did with them?
1: Yes, we're going to have the dioramas, plus we're going to have the photographs and the video showing the final product. It's a fantastic show. I'm very excited for it.
0: So his final product, can you not tell their miniatures?
1: you cannot. He really has harnessed his kind of the the combination of all of his craft, right? Where he's making these dioramas, and then he's setting them up in such a way where he has natural sunlight pouring into them through a window on this, you know, dilapidated sofa with a chair in the corner and dust all over the place. He uses some compressed air, he puts a little spray of compressed air, so the dust really kicks up. And then he takes his photos or videos. And so With that, you don't really know if you're looking at a life-size abandoned living room or if it's in miniature. And I think when someone can accomplish that, it's, I mean, that is an art into itself. It's absolutely incredible.
0: That is hard. I mean, how much time do we all spend taking pictures trying to get the light (laughs) right?
1: (laughs) I know I've spent way too much time trying to do that. And then most of them go in the trash because they're so terrible.
0: Now, I know you had another exhibit that was really interesting that was more, historical. You had some Japanese items. Maybe you can explain them a little better.
1: Yes. So those were the Japanese netsuke, and we had entitled it Upholding Cultural History of Japan. So what these netsuke were was typically carved out of bone. They are actually in our permanent collection, but this is one of the exhibit spotlights. So we bring these out every once in a while so people can take a look at them again and get reacquainted with them. We do have a number of them. And what they were used for were to hold the belt on a robe back in the, you know, like we're talking early 1600s. Like a toggle or a button. Yeah, like a toggle or a button. Um, or, you know, in the Southwest, we have the bolo tie, which is a, you know, piece of string wraps around your neck. And then there's a little cinch in the middle of it that, that you're able to move up to tighten it. It's the same, same things, but just in Japanese culture. These were predominant from the early 1600s all the way until the mid-1800s. They were originally carved from bone, but then they really kind of took off. They were carved in wood, ivory, tooth, tusk, porcelain, metal. I mean, really, you name it, it's there. They're the most incredible pieces. Um, I'm looking at one on my computer right now. It is a, a fox or a wolf that is being pinned to the ground by a skeleton. And so in this kind of circular shape with the fox on the bottom and the skeleton on the top, that's where in between you would put the belt to cinch. They're so amazing to look at.
0: You know, one question when I was looking at all the different exhibits and everything is because you expand behind miniature houses, like how do you find these exhibits? I mean, you can't just type in, you know, really small art, or, <laughs> I would imagine, <laughs> right. it must take a lot of creativity and looking to find things that are relevant and miniature, yeah. but not necessarily your traditional miniatures.
1: Yes, I agree. And I would have to say that our curatorial staff, which consists of curator and registrar, they do a very good job of finding the the new artists right whether that be through social media whether that be through word of mouth or you know just through knowledge of a genre of art right and kind of going down the rabbit hole when you go down the rabbit hole you always find more and more and more things for them to be able to find these artists has it's always just astounded me
0: now you also have quite a big children's program right there's a story time tree
1: and It looks like all kinds of things. It's so many things. We actually, it's called the Enchanted Realm, and it is a very large portion of the museum is the Enchanted Realm. And it is magical. We have a very large tree that you just mentioned. In the tree, we actually have built in uh, a mouse house. And so you're able to look at these where the tree would have little holes or knots. We've actually put in little scenes from the daily life of a mouse.
0: I want to live in the enchanted realm, (laughs)
1: Chad. It's the sweetest thing. Our founder, Pat Arnell, she was always taken by the fantasy of miniatures. Fairy Caitlin, who is the mascot of the museum, I would say, she lives in the enchanted realm. And so when we have reading time for the kids we have Fairy Caitlin come in and read to the children. And then we have a large education department um, that does an amazing job with community outreach, both at schools and bringing kids into the museum. Um, It's very well funded. We're able to also host weekend arts and craft classes, holiday events as well. And this year, for the first time, rodeo, since we're in the Southwest, rodeo is a big event for us here. We um, The schools are actually closed.
0: Really? The schools closed for that?
1: So it's a four-day weekend, and we're offering a workshop for kids on those two days. So it's basically a rodeo summer camp. And so it's just another way for young people to get involved with the museum.
0: That's really fantastic. Well, I was kind of wondering, you know, it's an unusual name, but with Mini Time Machine, you know, is part of the way you interpret your mission is to use these miniatures to explain history?
1: That's one part of it, for sure. We do have a a large amount of historical miniatures, antique miniatures, or modern day miniatures that uh, are able to take you back. But the founder, was her thought was that when you would step into the miniature museum, that you would be taking a step in a time machine that would take you to different points of time throughout our history. Going along that fantasy part of miniatures, you can go from our enchanted realm and see the magical tree or see the Aura Bentley's Adams Family Home is there. And then you go into the next gallery where you're next to the Yellow Rose of Texas and Green and Green. And then you go into our history gallery, which has pieces that are from the 1800s. Yesterday when I was inquiring about a couple of pieces, it came to my attention that our oldest piece that we have is called the Nuremberg Kitchen, and it was meant for young girls of a upper class to be able to have a miniature kitchen to play in. That one is from 1742, and so we have some very old pieces in our collection.
0: And was that piece in one or was that larger?
1: That was larger. It's, um, I think that piece, being the age that it was, was really before scale, the idea of scale. And so if you were to look at it today, it's, it's definitely more of 1-6, more of a doll scale.
0: Which makes sense if it was for girls to play with.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: I've seen a few early German pieces, and it seems like they're always a little bigger than other things.
1: Yes, that's exactly what the Nuremberg Kitchen is. It falls right in line with that
0: coincidence. I don't know. That's just right. <laughs> been, that's just been what I thought. Now, you personally are a miniaturist, and you've had a lot of miniature adventures lately. Didn't you just go to a class in Colonial Williamsburg?
1: I did. I went to the International Guild of Miniature Artisans Work Study Program that they have every year in Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. It was the first year I went and actually the first time that I was in Colonial Williamsburg, which is an amazing place. They have over 600 houses that are from the late 16, early 1700s.
0: It's a beautiful place.
1: It really is. It's so beautiful. And their museum is absolutely spectacular. And so what IGMA does, the International Guild of Miniature Artisans, what IGMA does is they get four of their artisans per year to put forth an idea of a build that they can have students come and do. The only requirement is that the build needs to be something that is in the Colonial Williamsburg Museum. So this year, uh, I was lucky enough to get my first choice of classes, which was from an an artisan with IGMA. His name's Craig LeBenz, and he was doing a late 1600, early 1700 cupboard. We went on the Friday prior to class into the museum to see the life-size version of it. And then the following Saturday, Sunday, and part of Monday, we uh, were in class at the Lodge at Williamsburg, and we made the piece. There were 10 of us in the class, and under his instruction, we had the best time. It was definitely full-on. It was Those, those work days were from 8 in the morning until 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and you were go, go, go to, uh, to finish up your project.
0: You would have to be, because... I mean, I'll have the weekend. I'll be like, I'm going to do all this or that. And I'm lucky if I get, you know, a little painting up or
1: wallpaper. Yes, or something. It, that's the story of my life. I think you know, I have these delusions of grandeur that I that I look at a project I want to finish. And I think, oh, I'm going to do that. And then I've, you know, I've placed one piece of furniture in it by the weekend. And I thought, well, that was fun.
0: <laughs> right. So it was a long weekend, and but it sounds really fun. Did you have some fun dinners in Colonial Williamsburg? What else did you do?
1: Oh, my gosh, yeah. It was a great time. They have an opening dinner the night, the night before you start your classes. It's just a really great opportunity for everyone who is taking those classes to kind of come together and talk about what they're excited about doing. And just like uh, the school in Castine, um, which I know was your your last podcast that you did, you start to get this camaraderie with your fellow miniaturists. and you start to see familiar faces the more you go and, and make these friendships that oftentimes last outside of guild school, whether it be the, the uh, work study program or the school in Castine people that you keep up with throughout the year on Instagram or send emails to, share ideas with. It's such a great community. We have the dinner, which was fantastic. And then you have a closing graduation uh, luncheon. And you, uh, at the very end, you basically take out uh, everyone from, this, from the classes. There are four different classes that were going on. So the students bring out their pieces that they've, that they've been working on and put them on a table so everyone can see them, it's such a great experience. There's there's so much positivity. Everyone's helping each other out. Everyone is giving each other a pat on the back saying, good job. It's a fantastic experience.
0: Well, and you share something in common. You have this specialized interest that brings you together, I think.
1: Right. That is so true.
0: Talking to you is really good timing about this because my last podcast was on that, but we didn't really get into the Colonial Williamsburg program. Mm-hmm. So- Thanks, Chad. Good timing. I
1: think with that, you know, the Colonial Williamsburg is a fun one because it's basically guild school light, right? You're there for two and a half days as opposed to a whole week. You're working on one piece of furniture as opposed to three, even possibly four pieces.
0: Well, not everyone can take a whole week off. There's different times of the year. So it's nice they have a couple different types of programs.
1: That's very true.
0: So when did you start getting into miniatures?
1: So it's been a long time coming. I'll say that. When I was growing up, it was model railroads for me and my father. We, at Christmas time, had a, a model railroad that we would bring out and work on for a couple of months and then break it all down and bring it out the next year again. My grandparents always had miniatures when I was growing up as well. They both took an early retirement and were huge estate sailors and thrifters. And would find the most incredible miniature houses that they would bring home and kind of work on and then they would sell. And so when I would spend the summer times with them, I would get to help them and, uh, and play in the miniature houses. I come from an interior design background. My whole family's been interior designers. And so I've always loved to play around with interiors. That got me started on it. And then, of course, you get into your teens, 20s and 30s, and you kind of life starts to happen, fell out of it. Then during pandemic, I realized that I had a couple of extra hours on my hand. Before pandemic, my father passed away, and I was looking for a way to kind of Bring back good memories that Mm -hmm. I had with him, and one of those memories was trains. So even before pandemic, I uh, started uh, an end scale model railroad that I was building up. But I found myself thinking, "What's going on in those little buildings?" You know, I had all of these great little end scale, um, which is basically one in one hundred and forty fourth buildings that I was placing around and doing the landscaping. And then I thought to myself, "I want to, I want to be in that." That's when pandemic hit, and I thought, "You know what? This is my chance to do that." I bought my first house from a lady's estate uh, up in Phoenix. It was a row house or a, a, as I called it a brownstone. That was the first piece that I got. It is in constant state of remodel. It's never been finished and I don't know if it ever will be finished, um, which is always the fun of miniatures. And then I have about four or five other projects that I work on here and there and try to post as often as I can. It was definitely a hobby that Kind of took me by surprise how much I really enjoy it I've had a lot of hobbies and it, most of them just don't stick but this one really has uh, you know the more community that you meet the the people the artwork that is there
0: that's really interesting because I think that especially a lot of guys do sometimes get into it through the
1: railroads it's so true It's interesting because there's a lot of guys that are in the model railroad, the dioramas, the making of buildings that you don't necessarily see the interior of, like a New York tenement that is recreated in miniature. When you look at the names of those artists, it is a lot of males that do that. Mm -hmm. But then when you focus on the interior of the house, it seems to be a predominantly female-led group of people. And it doesn't need to be. One thing actually with Colonial Williamsburg was that I was, I was amazed at how many guys were there. There were two male teachers. It was so nice to be around some like-minded guys that were all about making the piece of furniture and, to put into a small room that they were, that they were making.
0: That is nice. Now, do you ever get? I still get when I say something about miniatures, or people see it. Sometimes I get a funny reaction, like "Why do you do that?" or "What's the point?" <laughs> or-
1: Becky, all the time, all the time, I get that. But it really is incredible that when I, you know, pull out my phone and pull up a couple of pictures of pieces I, that I've made, either in Castine or at Williamsburg or on my own. People say, oh, is that real life? No, it's miniature. Oh, okay, now I get it. I don't necessarily know if they actually do get it. They're probably still like, why, why is he making this tiny chest? <laughs> when, you know.
0: Well, miniatures, when you see them, they sort of are very appealing. And a lot of my friends are like, oh, that's cool. Not that they're going to do it themselves. That <laughs> they can at least appreciate a little bit. Exactly. Or at least... My friends aren't miniatures, if you're not sincere, I really appreciate your supporting me. Yes, anyway. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the,
1: the support is everything, right? You can do so much with just a little bit of support. And so if you know that people are interested, not necessarily understanding, but interested in what you're doing, right. it really, it speaks volumes. And I think with the museum, that's one thing that we also do really well is that the temporary exhibits and also a lot of our permit collection that we have – It's not gender focused, right? You, You will not find a lot of dolls in our miniature houses. So I would think that kids of all ages and adults of all ages could come in and either look at some of the buildings as an architectural representation or we have an exhibit there called Metal Monsters by an artist, Jim Rourke. And basically what he does is he gets those car model kits that that people put together. A lot of guys put these together. And then he makes small dioramas of them in different states of disrepair to be able to have a young boy come in and see that and say, oh, that's really cool. Well, that's a form of miniature. And it starts to break down the idea that miniatures are only for females.
0: I think that's good. You know, looking back, my kids, particularly my oldest, played a lot with Playmobil. Mm-hmm. The castle set, the jungle set, you know, all mixed together. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he would make little plays up and everything like that. And, you know, I didn't think of it as a miniature. I mean, I obviously knew it was right. tiny, but I didn't think of it as a dollhouse because it wasn't. It was a jungle. It was a castle. You know, there were men with cannons. But that's really what it was. They're great toys because he just was so imaginative with it.
1: Exactly. And I think that something could also be said for things like Playmobil, where you're setting up a room. So even as you go from a child to an adolescent to an adult, when you have your first apartment, I would think that you would then have kind of the wherewithal to know, like, oh, okay, here's my living room. These are the things I need in my living room because I played with this miniature house when I was growing up. And, you know, it just, it sets you up for the future, I think, a little bit better.
0: Well, Chad, I hate to disavow you of that, but as the mother of two boys it in it their 20s, <laughs> the interior designer in you is coming out. Right. <laughs> but I do have a question about that. So I've, I've seen your miniatures, I've, and I've seen some pictures of your, and we will share all these pictures, and I've seen some pictures of your real-life home. Do you think your design aesthetic is the same in both? Not
1: at all. And that's the number one thing that I love about miniatures my house, my life-size house, the one I live in. It's from 1966. It's a very mid-century desert home, and all of the pieces that I have in my home are from mid-century designers, but I don't have any desire to actually make a miniature of a modern or mid-century house. I focus on pretty much every other design style out there when I'm working in miniature.
0: That's what I find so interesting, because when I, I met you at in Philadelphia at the show two years ago, and I saw pictures of your home before I saw pictures of your miniature, and so I was expecting all these modern minis.
1: Right. Miniatures are so good because you're able to explore the, the different styles throughout the years without having to make a whole room in your life-size home into a, a Renaissance room or an arts and craft room.
0: Right. You can put something impractical. You can change it. You can use brighter colors. That's one thing I like. It's fun to make it look realistic, but it doesn't have to be realistic in that
1: you have to live in it. Exactly. In my office uh, for my interior design business, sitting on my bookshelf, I have a late 1800s, early 1900s modeled German bar. And, you know, it's got lace curtains. It's got a lot of dark wood. None of that I would ever buy for myself in my real life. But to be able to create that theme is so fun and with this piece that i made in colonial williamsburg i already have a room box that's going to be a you know a colonial style living room and that piece will go in there and i'll build around it and i'll get to i'll get to teach myself about these different eras because it's it's not something that i think that people should just know off the top of their head oh you know colonial is this 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 you do you do some research and that's half the fun of it
0: it is So do you have one thing that you love doing in miniature or one thing that you really can't stand doing in miniature? Everyone has something, I
1: think. I think if I would have to pick one thing in miniature, it would be furniture, right? I love building furniture, whether it be the class I just took at Colonial Williamsburg where you're literally milling down the pieces of wood, Um, you're making the mortise and tenons and the dovetails and really getting into it. That I absolutely love doing as well as building kits, right? I love kit furniture. Any of the house of miniatures, anything that keeps my hands busy with wood, I absolutely love. I would say wood and furniture, that's my love in miniature.
0: That's interesting because I definitely love the fabric and the paint. (laughs) But that's also because that's where the color is
1: being in interior design in my profession, I absolutely love textiles. I love the fabric and I love the feel of fabric. I love everything that you can do with it. In the miniature world, when you can get a really cool woven fabric in real life and turn it into a rug in your, you know, in your miniature dining room, it's such a win. win. It's so fun. It's so fun. Or
0: when you see a pattern that's tiny enough to be, you know, a pillow or...
1: All about. It. I have, I've got a closet full of fabrics that I know one day I'm going to do something with it.
0: I have way too many fabrics, here. <laughs> right? <laughs> I keep thinking, well, I'm going to need all these to coordinate, and I'm like, one room doesn't need eight fabrics, but <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. I mean every every room does. Every bed, every bed needs at least six fabrics on it. Yes, at minimum. And then I would have to say that the the one thing I don't I don't necessarily hate it or loathe it, but I just the lack of understanding that I have around it is electrical and lighting.
0: I really got to conquer my fear of that.
1: I do too. There are so many projects that are up to the lighting stage. And I honestly, my, my miniature brownstone, the reason why it's in a constant state of remodel is I cannot figure out how to light the thing. And if I'm supposed to, you know, put the lights in and then do the walls or do I do the walls first? And then do I just put an led light in there? I'm like, I'm so confused that I've just gotten to this point where I'm like, oh, I'll deal with it later. But so if I could conquer electricity, I would I would be so happy.
0: That's a big issue. And, you know, when I first started miniatures, people said, oh, what are you going to do for lighting? I was like, oh, lighting smiting. (laughs) But now I'm like, oh, lighting. That is a big one. (laughs) It's almost as big as what kind of glue are you
1: going to use?
0: (laughs) Things I didn't realize were
1: such a big deal glue is a big thing. I think you could have a whole, mat uh, mad about miniatures on glue for miniatures.
0: I showed her at least like a little special edition, you know.
1: (laughs) It's funny you say, because when we were in Williamsburg, Craig and uh, Fran Sussman, who she does a lot of uh, 1 144th scenes, her work is uh, is incredible. They're good friends. And they, one afternoon and evening, they did a test on what is the best glue to adhere hardware onto a wood cabinet.
0: Oh, I want to know the answer to that,
1: Craig had a very more, like a, a, a bit more expensive glue that was almost like a epoxy glue that he said worked really well, but there's a glue that is out there called Rue glue, R-O-O glue, and oh. it is... Pete and Pam Borum, who do a lot of woodworking, they're part of Igma. They're fantastic people. They sell this rue glue, but they also use it, and that's how I found out about it. It has a great consistency. It adheres, you know, metal to wood, and that was one of the glues that Craig and Fran used, and that was one of the top choices as well.
0: Well, if it's good enough for them, right, it's probably good <laughs> enough for me. <laughs> That's interesting because I'm always asking people like when they're doing projects, like what what glue do you have in your arsenal? We should do that someday. We should ask everyone to do like a, a day where we all show our glue.
1: I totally agree. You know, you're going to find a glue or see a glue out there that you've never heard of before that someone just swears by. And that could be your new go to.
0: It could. And that was one of my biggest issues when I first started. Well, Chad, this has been just fascinating. I feel like we've just learned so
1: much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad that I was able to share a little bit of something that makes me very happy in this world. So, thank you.
0: Oh, I am too. It's all about finding your joy where you can, isn't it?
1: Yes, yes, it certainly is.
0: Too well. That's a great note to end on. So, thanks for sharing that with us, Chad. I love sharing the joy of miniatures too. That's why I love doing this podcast.
1: Well, keep it up, Becky. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Bye, bye. Bye. That was so fun talking to Chad. My next podcast is out Tuesday, April 11th, and we'll be talking to Savannah from the Museum of Miniature Houses in Carmel, Indiana. They recently had a grand reopening, and we'll talk about that, their Adams Family Home by Kelly of KK Custom Miniature Creations, their Thorn Room, and so much more. In the meantime, continue to send me photos of your minis with a pop teal to be featured in my stories for hashtag teal Tuesday. And remember, Your dollhouse, your rules. Goodbye.